This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hi, this is Jen from Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and I'm here with Lynn today. Hi, I'm looking forward to our subject today, Jen. Yeah, I always have a great time talking with you. So today's subject came up kind of in a different way, where... I was driving in the car and I was listening to the radio and I heard Ryan Seacrest on the radio. And it got me thinking about the fact that Ryan Seacrest was accused of sexual assault by his ex-stylist. And I was thinking about why is he still on the radio? So I remembered that there were some components where they did an internal investigation and they found him not guilty. But based on what I had read about the ex-stylist experience and my background in psychology and being a therapist, I was pretty sure that this experience had happened. And so then it got me thinking even more just about, in general, why is it that abusers are so protected, not just by individuals, but by the companies they work for, by people in the public, because you see a lot of the back and forth kind of arguing anytime something like this comes out on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, there, there are people arguing very intensely about people that they don't actually know in person. And I just find it such a fascinating thing. And so I was like, this would be a great topic for us to talk about. So here we are. Well, it was great, I think, when you brought the subject up, because it raises a lot of questions, which is really about all the mechanisms when all, within all these organizations that protect uh, abusers. And it can be the Catholic Church, it can be the public school system, it can be our entertainment industry. There's just a whole range of mechanisms that bring up questions and really are really good topics to talk about and to know are in place. And I think that's the thing is helping people acknowledge and also connecting the dots, because I think to some degree, we are talking a little bit more about abuse and grooming and how these things can happen. But we don't necessarily connect the fact that there are very clear systems in place that then it doesn't matter necessarily just like, oh, this is happening in the Catholic Church. Oh, this is happening in the school. That these aren't isolated incidents. That there's really this overarching umbrella, this system that allows abusers to take advantage of the system and abuse people. And that they're really connected incidents. I don't know if that was redundant, but I wanted to really kind of hammer that home. And it, it brings us back to the experience, you know, first for the person doing the accusing. And having had one experience in my life of this situation, I'll just say briefly, I filed uh, sex discrimination, harassment, and was then terminated from my job at the university. 
and a five-year lawsuit took place before I was returned, you know, after an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission finding. And the university actually found in my favor, though then they discredited from the chancellor's level, and they fired me. So you see how the mechanism works to push the person who's accusing out, and the other person is maintained. And this happened about 35 years ago, it shocked me, but it just repeats over and over and over again. And I think that's the thing is when I was younger, I was shocked by it. But I also started to see more like, oh, okay, this does happen more than I had assumed it does. But it wasn't until I was much older that I started to connect that these weren't separate incidences, that it wasn't just like this school has this problem that it was really more of our society, our culture, the way we don't talk about things, the way we uphold rigid structures that that affect our ability to even have conversations about these things because it makes people feel abnormal or uncomfortable and they avoid that. And it changes really our belief system, how we're thinking, we're feeling, and what we've expected from hierarchies to protect us, really. Right. I was struck, you encouraged me to do this study that we worked on this year, really about the school systems in California and sex abuse grooming. And we discovered a lot of things, Jen, that really relate, I think, directly to this about how the groomer works in to setting up the environment. Oh, absolutely. And we can go over that a little briefly here. I'm happy to talk about some of those main points. But certainly, please check out our episode on that, because we did a whole episode on the report and some of our findings and what we think it's important for the public to understand about this whole situation and and the full system. So to go into that in brief, as I was saying, I think as a society, we are at least starting to better understand that grooming of a person can happen that abusers will identify vulnerabilities in people and exploit them in order to maintain their power and maintain their ability to abuse. What I don't think people are as cognizant of is that there's really two other major processes that go into grooming. So the first is that there is a grooming of the environment so that you create again, that system where you are able to do these things. And part of what that entails is really identifying places where you can have a lot of power, have access to whoever it is that you're going to abuse, and that the people within that system are not likely to bring up or challenge the silence that pervades that type of environment. Does that kind of cover some of the basics there? You think, am I leaving anything out? No, no. I I think for real people, that means that kids in schools won't file against abusers. Girls who've been abused by teachers, they won't. Because they believe they won't be heard. And the abusers say this to them. Nobody will believe you. That's what the teachers who abuse say. Oh, that's a huge thing that's said. And so I think that contributes. That's the grooming we're really talking about. It's not just making friends with the kid. It's actually telling them how the system will react if they do say something. And what was so interesting from the report is that we were looking at how the onset or the widespread 
acceptance, especially by youth of social media and the internet, has affected the way groomers will groom the environment. Because one of the things that they found that was so different is before you needed to use threats more often, such as, you know, if you tell this person terrible things are going to happen to your family or if you care about me, then it would be, you know, like something terrible will happen to me. But what they found is that with social media, it normalizes the way these teachers are interacting with these kids. So then it bypasses their need to threaten them because they feel so close and they have a caring relationship. So they actually prey upon the caring relationship rather than threatening in the same way. I found that so fascinating. Well, the concern, you know, that you and I then had about it, and it's consistent with what we see, there's more abuse showing up in the schools. Yeah. And uh, that the rates are climbing because the social media in some ways supports this abusive process. And they haven't even begun to look at, you know, what this online supported abuse is, but it's part of the grooming tools. And it's harder to detect yeah. for the teens and children that yeah. are engaging in these types of dialogues because they're so normalized for them in healthy situations. Yeah. To go back to you listening to the radio yeah. about here, this abuser still in the job. I, I think so many people in our country and around the world are having that experience, not only listening to the radio, but we see our president, current president, with many allegations still in the job. We see people all over the world abusing power still in the job. Well, Chris Hardwick, yeah. going back to the situation we were talking about with Chloe Dykstra, or Dykstra, he's back in his job at Nerdist. And that kind of prompted me in some of this thinking, too. Like, my wheels have definitely been turning, especially as so much is going on in the advent of the Me Too movement, and also people just being encouraged to share their stories. The one thing, I'm going to share something about my story years ago, because it does pertain. Um, It took five years to win a lawsuit against a major entity. And I had a lot of support. I had a great attorney. I was, my job was taken away. And the uh, those who have been abused are pushed out so that they're really sent away from the system. And unless you have a source of income or money, you cannot fight that type of thing. Absolutely. And this is, you ask why all these people are back. The system supports them. And those who have suffered abuse or making the allegations have a lot of trouble getting the resources to fight back. Mm -hmm. So I worked, you know, in an outside line of work kind of, you know, to earn large sum of money at that time and to fight back with the situation. And I estimate, I'll just say this because I know this from another report, the university 35 years ago spent $750,000 fighting me. Wow. You know, so that's the report on that. So you get a sense of the sort of money they will spend fighting someone who's coming forward. And I think that's an, that's a, important thing for us to delve into there is, again, it goes back to our question, why dedicate all those resources to protecting an abuser? Yes. Yes, exactly. And thinking about you listening to the radio and American Idol, how Mm -hmm. much money Mm -hmm. was spent 
in that regard. Yeah. And we hear these allegations about our president, and we actually start to see some of the stream of money. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge amount of resources that, uh, you know, enforces this type of system. I think I I want to add on to that, too, just going back to what I was saying about the three components of grooming, because it relates here. The third is that groomers also, before they engage in any of this behavior, before they seek out the environment, before they identify their victims, they groom themselves so that they no longer see the acts they're engaging in as abusive or they see it as a positive thing for the child, like, oh, I'm helping them with their sexuality, or, you know, I could go on with the list. But there are many different ways that groomers groom themselves so that when they are confronted with it, they are not able to accept that their behavior is problematic. They don't always deny the behavior they're engaging in, although with some of these more high-level people being accused, they just completely deny it. But when abusers are accused, they don't always deny the behavior they're engaging in. They deny that it's problematic. Some, some, and I think that's a major thing that happens, Jen, but I've also seen them use all kinds of illegal means, you know, initially lie, deny. And you see this, for example, with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. You see this with the CBS uh, chairperson who lied to the board. And they right. were so irritated but about I, that. Right. But I, I feel like that's that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. The response mm-hmm. is often anger and irritation. And it's because they've convinced themselves that what they did was okay. Yes. Yes. I, I think they believe that inside and they use all kinds of, of right. methods to, you know, kind of fall behind it. It's really, really interesting looking at how they maneuver. Mm-hmm. But I think we're trying to point out the whole system yes. is working to keep them in power. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In my lifetime, the other big area that I've worked on has been the Catholic Church abuse. And what is interesting now, we see the Pope Francis mm-hmm. calling this massive group to address this topic, really, of abuse. And uh, I think that's going to be a time where our listeners can really see how much will this work, if at all, what kind of issues come up with it. And I'm, I'm, looking forward to seeing how this is explored. I think two things for listeners to pay attention to is how are places where there's very rigid dogma combined with a system of enforced complicity through silence, how how are those places, how are they being spotlighted? How do people look at these situations? Because those two components, I can tell you, are a huge part of the environment of grooming for abuse. And that came out in the study we jointly worked on, but we really see it everywhere, trying to enforce silence and shut up not only the person accusing who's pushed out, but shut up everybody else who's really speaking out about it. You know, in the Catholic Church, there's a large component of gay priests to really speak out very reasonably about sexuality. You know, and they're an important component, a subgroup in the church. But this whole group has really been mounted by the conservatives, this meeting. And there's going to be really some struggles around this whole issue. So, it's uh it's important to listen to the different voices. 
And conservative has increasingly become associated with being rigid and remaining unchanging. <laughs> and I think that plays into a lot of our inability to have these discussions even, because if you're unwilling to even question or look at these beliefs, where they come from, how they're developed, then you can't actually shift what needs to be shifted, which is the entire premise, the underlying belief. And that brings up sort of the culture we live in where we often are supporting systems of misogyny and misogyny itself will work to support the position of men, certain men in power. Because misogyny kind of goes without saying is a rigid dogmatic belief. <laughs> right, right, that, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's in that way. And I think a lot of times we don't, we don't think of it that way. Well, it's so, it, it, I mean, it's cliche, but it really reminds me a lot of the whole like fish and water thing, right? Like it's so much a part of our culture that unless you're taught to really think about it, you just assume like, of course, it's this way. What do you think uh, our listeners can take away maybe in their environment, you know, because abuse is really everywhere. And what tools can listeners really have and in, in the environment to use? Uh, one is not to have rigid, dogmatic beliefs be open to change. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. But what other things, you know, I'm, I'm one thing I think of is maybe support those, listen to those with allegations coming forward. Yes. And listen to them being silenced too. Mm -hmm. I think be aware of this process. I think to be aware of how discomfort is used as a mean to silence people. So a lot of times bringing up these types of topics makes us uncomfortable. And because of that, we prioritize our discomfort over somebody's story. And to recognize the times and the ways in which we do this and that we really need to have a cultural shift where discomfort is not the same thing as danger. Because danger will make us want to close in. It will make us want to close up. It will make us seek safety. And what we really need is actually a sense of security where you can talk with other people and you can share and you can disagree very intensely on things, but that there is a dialogue. And I think what gets in the way of that dialogue a lot of the time is the prioritizing of discomfort. I'm uncomfortable, so we should just not talk about this. And this is an uncomfortable topic. Oh, use. absolutely. And even, you know, I notice we use more, you and I, Jim, we use, use more jargon, academic jargon. I know, talking I, about I it. lean on it. Because it, it's such an uncomfortable topic, yeah. talking about people around us, you know, abusing us, us abusing other people. Mm -hmm. You know, all of this is something that is really hard to look at. But it's important for us as people to know that we silence the subject. Mm -hmm. So it goes underground, and it really leads to more abuse. And I think also recognizing that it's these small interactions that create this environment. So it's not this like one-time decision that you make. It's really, oh, you know, so-and-so is saying this, it's making me uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm just going to try to change the subject. We're going to talk about something else. And people then register that and they go, oh, okay, this is uncomfortable for this person. So then I can't say this. I must not be able to say this to anybody. And it's got a chain reaction in that way. So I really think being able to not just think about it on a large scale, but on our day-to-day -day interactions. Like, what are the ways that we ourselves engage in this behavior? Exactly. And I think uh, one other takeaway I'd like our listeners to think about 
is the information that we discovered in the study, you know, around the online effects of the silencing of abuse and how it works, how the industry really works to silence it, and how abusers use the industry, you know, to silence those speaking out against them, which really means they use the press. Mm-hmm. You know, they use them as mechanisms. You know, we think about some of the news agencies that are largely tools used by abusers to promote certain positions and why and it's to discredit so exactly, other, yeah. and why it's so important to really support our press and, and freedom in that area. Cause that is so often, I think, used by abusers. They see that as a powerful agent. Oh, absolutely. And they use it. Yeah. One other thing I want to add that I think is an important component of this conversation that we haven't yet addressed is really that when we have to think about abuse, like it, it also makes us question ourselves because, you know, in situations like Ryan Seacrest, like he, he works very hard to present this image of masculinity. He kind of, what I think, like, toes the line between what is appropriate masculinity and presenting himself as sort of a non-threatening masculinity. And what that then raises is it's harder for people to even consider that he might use some of these manipulative tools, that he might engage in misogynist behavior, because it just creates immense cognitive dissonance. And so being able to go, okay, so he presents himself this way, and maybe it's true to who he is, but that doesn't automatically make him unable to access these tools as well. You make a very good point. It's actually one of the grooming techniques to kind of put a false operation out there. And you think about some of our political leaders who portray themselves as maybe poor when they're wealthy. And, uh, you know, they're really maneuvering and grooming the group for abuse and uh, to be aware of that, to look behind what people say and present. And also that it's a very thoughtful process. Yes. You know, I think to highlight that, because I think a lot of people sometimes when they're struck by it, and I think even when I was younger, I was just like, oh, my God, how does this happen? You know, like, oh, they must just find themselves in this situation. But the more I learn about it, absolutely not. Exactly. And that's why when you hear him on the radio, you know that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Exactly. Mm Yeah. Well, Jen, thank you so much for bringing the subject up. And uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners about this. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Lynn. Come on. Let's talk about-